And we'll look at the first seven verses of this text. Remember that the book of Revelation is the unveiling. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, who is coming with power and great glory. He's going to take that which Satan grabbed in the Garden of Eden when Adam fell into sin. Satan became the, became the prince of the power of the air. He had dominion and rulership over this creation temporarily. The Lord Jesus needs to come back and take it from the devil himself. And he is going to sit on the throne and he will rule as Adam should have ruled back in the days of the Garden of Eden. So we're anticipating this great day. It's a battle. It's the book of Revelation is a battle. It's the conquest, the conquering of this earth from satanic rule and power. And boy, praise the Lord that we get it very clearly. Jesus wins. That's the summation of the book in two words. Jesus wins. So it begins in chapter 1 with John the Apostle exiled on an island called Patmos off the shores of Asia Minor, off the shores of Ephesus, was a, a small island of, called Patmos. And there, the Apostle John, on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, he was given a vision. And he was told to write all these things down in the book, in a, in a book. And he, we know what he wrote. He wrote things which he had seen, things which are currently, and then things which shall be after. So there are three time periods that John's dealing with. And in chapter 1, he deals with the things that he had seen. It was the Lord Jesus Christ in risen, glorified form. And I took you last Sunday night through the vision that John had of the, the Lord Jesus, dressed out in a garment down to his feet with a gold belt, a gold sash around his waist. We saw that his eyes were burning like a fire, and his feet were, were like finely, fi- fine bronze that were burnt in a, in a furnace. And his voice, like the sound of a tumultuous waterfall, just a roaring depth of sound. Wow, what a vision. That's what John had seen. It was the commander of the heavenly armies. So in chapter 1, we're introduced to the commander of God's armies, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now in chapters 2 and 3, we have seven letters written to seven churches. These churches are behind enemy lines. We're living in Satan's land. This is Satan's domain and territory, and we are soon going to be called home. Because before the battle begins, always the king takes the ambassadors home. And Just remember, we are ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors of Jesus Christ here on earth. And so these seven letters, they're designed to rally us in these end days. As we're waiting for the rapture and the return of Christ to come, we're to be rallied to serve him with joyful, grateful, energetic hearts. So I see these seven letters as rally letters to his ambassadors before he takes us home and the battle begins. Then in chapters 4, Through 19, we watch the battle unfold. Chapter 19 and 20, the Lord comes to set up his kingdom. And then 21 and 22, all of that is merged after a thousand years into the eternal state. What a glorious plan. And so tonight, we're going to be concentrating on these seven letters in the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, as we begin our study now of chapter 2, help us to understand this church in Ephesus, both what they were praised for, but also what they were condemned for where they found your disapproval. I pray, Father, that we would learn. We must learn. We must remember and we must change. We must repent. We must change our mind about sin and, and respond with trusting, faithful hearts to the Lord. So I pray, Father, that you would be changing and growing and strengthening our church in these days. We need to be rallied because the enemy is around everywhere and he is seeking to destroy the church on the earth 
that we want to stand as a light, as a lampstand to a dark, corrupt society that everyone would see and hear from us that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, Father, strengthen us, encourage us, and convict us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, tonight, chapter 2, we're looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Let me tell you that there's a couple of ways that we can look at these seven churches. First of all, these, I look at it literally. So, this is not part of your notes if you have your outline, but I want you to think of it this way. These were seven literal churches that assembled like we are. They assembled in one place, whether it was a cave or somebody's house or outside somebody's house, or they met someplace, and you could go to those villages or cities, and you could find the church, and you could sit in one of their services. So these are seven literal churches, and they were seven types of churches. They all had different problems. They had different praises and different problems going on, and some didn't have any problems identified. But, but they are literal, and we're going to read them literally. But I also want you to know, we can look at it as um, personal application. Not only were they seven literal churches, but these churches identify problems and things going on in every Christian. So we can take each of these church letters and apply them personally. To him who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if the shoe fits at the end of the message, then wear it. Then let's change individually as God teaches us and as God humbles us. So we're looking at, again, as a, as a literal understanding of literal local churches. We're also applying the truth in our own lives because these seven churches with seven very different characters, characteristics are found in our lives. And maybe we're a Laodicean person. Maybe we're a Philadelphia person. Maybe we're a Smyrna Christian. Maybe we're an Ephesus Christian. I don't know, but the Lord will reveal that to us and we'll learn and grow thereby. But we also can look at it as prophetic. There's a prophetic piece to the seven churches. Not only are they literal churches with literal needs that the Lord addressed, but they're also a very good personal application for us. But they're also, I believe, prophetic in the sense that these seven churches, whether God intended, I know he, he, pro, he intended it, but it, it's not clearly written. But we can see that these seven churches lay out all of church history. There was an apostolic age when the church first grew and first uh, heard the gospel and responded to the gospel through the, through the apostles. And then from there, about 100 AD, it became a persecuted church. And then Constantine came and he married the church with the world. And then there was all, oh, many stages, seven stages of church history. And thankfully, I think we can pick out that we are living in the final seventh stage of church history, the Laodicean age, the lukewarm complacent, apathetic. We think we're rich, but we're really spiritually poor age. And so we'll see as we go through the seven churches that they, that they lay out before us seven broad sweeping time periods that the church has gone through. And um, then I think there's also a universal understanding. Here's what I mean by that. So literally, there was a church in Ephesus, there was a church in Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, they were literal churches, and they also represent church ages, but also we can personally apply all of the truth. But I think during every age of the church, all seven types of churches have existed on the earth. So I think right now in 2016, there are Ephesus churches around around the world, different places. I think there's Smyrna churches going on. I think there's Laodicean I think all the churches are around on earth. And the question is, what are we? What kind of church are we? And where is the Lord pointing his light? If he could write a letter to Faith Baptist and send it down by a messenger, 
And he were to say, to the pastor, Brian, at Faith Baptist Church, here's who I am as Lord and King, and here's what I see in your church as I watch you week after week, day after day. Here's what I observe. Here's what I approve. Here's what I condemn. And here's what you need to do to change. Very convicting if we realized it's that personal. Don't you agree? So let's take a look here at this church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, the Bible says this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, and now we're going to get a description of the Lord taken from John's vision from chapter 1. These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this is the letter that the Lord Jesus writes to a a literal church in, in Ephesus. And again, because the Lord is writing it, we must pay attention. So we're going to start with the history of the city. This is written, as we see from chapter 2, verse 1. This is written to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, let me tell you about it. On the Asia Minor coast, right along the Aegean Sea, was the city of Ephesus. It was a seaport, much like our city is a seaport. And um, the actual port of the city went way inland. There was a big bay, and the Kayasta River would flow down the valley, and it would go into the, the bay. And then uh, the bay would connect, of course, to the Aegean Sea. But over time, even in the Apostle Paul's day, this bay began to be silted. It, the, all the sediment from the valley would come in, and it would just rest, and it would fill up. So they always had to dredge a little canal for the ships and the boats to get in. And eventually, that entire kind of circular bay area completely filled in with dirt. So when I was there back in 2009, and I know Jeremy and Charlene were there just recently, but you can stand in, in the theater of, the, of Ephesus and you can look out and you can see where the bog is now, where the old harbor was that the Apostle Paul would have uh, traveled in and out of and John would have traveled in and out of. Right now, the city is about six miles from the Aegean Sea. You have to go six miles on land just to get to the city. But back in the day, it was right on the, on the seaport. It was a large city. It boasted a population of about 600,000 people. And although it wasn't the capital of Asia Minor, of that region, Pergamus was the capital, it was the wealthiest city in the region. It was the wealthiest and the largest city. It was known as Lumina Asia, the light of Asia. And it was also known as, um, as one of the greatest, the greatest thing that it had was the temple of Artemis or Diana in it. There were four highways. There was a highway going east-west all the way to the coast. There was a highway north and south along the Aegean Sea. And so you had people traveling all over the place, north and south, east and west. And so many martyrs 
would travel that road when they were arrested as Christians to go to Rome to be killed, that going through Ephesus was a highway of martyrs. So again, it was a, a large city. It was very populous. Big thing, it held one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. This temple was made out of glittering Persian marble. It was 425 feet long and 265 feet wide. It had 130 hand-carved columns holding and supporting the roof all the way around. 37 of them were um, studded with diamonds and precious stones and carved out with innate carvings. What happened is when that temple eventually was raised, when it was tore down, they took many of those uh, Persian columns and pillars, and they brought them all the way up to Constantinople, today Istanbul. And there they, they uh, assembled the um, Sophia, the um, church, which is now a mosque. Well, anyways, you can find all of that related to this temple that was found in Ephesus. So what do we know about this? What do we know about the church starting in, in Ephesus? Here's what we know. The, the Apostle Paul came into Ephesus and found a uh, some followers of John the Baptist. And they were being taught by Apollos, who didn't know all of the way of Jesus, but he knew part of it, but he didn't know the whole truth. And so Priscilla and Aquila had come alongside to teach him more accurately the way of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul took this nucleus of followers of John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descended upon them, and a church was formed. The gospel transformed the lives so much of the Ephesian people that they took their magic books and brought them to the city center and worth 50,000 pieces of silver, they burned their magic books in a huge display. Now, I, wanna, I want you to think about this. The church is brand new. They have come out of paganism and idolatry to Artemis and other gods and goddesses and Caesar worship, and now they are in love with Jesus Christ. So much so that if you were one of the believers in those early days, you would remember the day, you'd remember the, the, the heat of the fire and the smell of the smoke as those magic books went up in flames. You would remember gathering together to worship, to sing, and to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. You would remember the first communion that you ever took when you broke the bread and drank the cup. You'd remember how, what it felt like to be baptized and to come out of that cold water proclaiming, Jesus is my Savior. He is the Lord. My allegiance goes to no other. Can you see how passionate and exciting it was? Out of Ephesus, the, gospel, the Bible says the gospel spread to everywhere in that region. Everywhere the gospel went because of this church. It was quite a fantastic church. Now, here's what it says in chapter 2 to the angel of the church of Ephesus. The angel, I believe, as I said last week, is the messenger or the pastor of the church. So the Lord is writing to the pastor of the church to instruct the whole church in the ways of, of the Lord. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things. These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, we know from chapter 1 that the seven stars are the seven pastors. So the Lord Jesus has the seven pastors in his hand to control them, to guard them, but I think to control them. Um, he chose the pastors of these churches, and he has them in his hand. And then it says, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Here's Christ's description of himself. He's holding the pastors in his hand, controlling them, ministering to them so they can minister to the church, and then he's walking in the midst of the lampstands. Right away, you're thinking in the Old Testament of the book of Leviticus. And it's in Leviticus chapter 24, the first three verses. God tells Aaron, okay, 
God tells Aaron, command the children of Israel to bring pressed olive oil, and you, Aaron, are in charge as high priest of the lampstand, the, the menorah that has seven lamps on the one lampstand. And it was Aaron's duty every day, day and night. He'd go and he'd make sure the wick is burning bright. He, if it wasn't, he would replace the wick, he'd replace the oil. He needed to make sure that this lampstand was burning brightly for the glory of God. It was his responsibility. He couldn't pass it off to somebody else. He was the one taking care of the lampstand. People, our church is the lampstand. And the Lord Jesus is walking in our midst, and he's watching our light radiate to the world. He's watching. Are we flickering? Are we smoldering? Are we beginning to fizz out? Are we, lo- are we losing the oil? Do we need a wick replaced? I mean, he is so attentive and watchful in the midst of our church. Do you agree? He knows what's going on. He cares what's going on. He cares about everything that's going on in our church. And and what he wants is he wants the gospel light to be a radiant light to our community. And so this is the description of the Lord. And the people of, of Ephesus, they would have understood when they read this letter, the Lord Jesus is in our midst, the one who died for us and rose again. Now it goes on and it says in verse 2, here's his approval of this church. The Lord says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. He goes on in verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. The first thing about this church that the Lord approves and, and shows his approval, it was a productive church. They labored, they worked. One of the words for labor and work is copious. They, they labored to the point of exhaustion. I, I think everybody in the church was actively and intimately involved in the work of the ministry. It wasn't like one person or ten people doing the work for everybody. It was like everybody was involved. Everybody was active and participating. There were no pew warmers. There were no Sunday morning only people. It was everybody saw a need, everybody had spiritual gifts, and everybody was using them. They labored, they grew weary. I mean, they labored, they, they excessively, to the point of exhaustion, served the Lord. If they had teaching gifts, they were busy teaching. They were busy teaching other people, children, the women, you know, everyone, everybody was being taught. If they had serving gifts, everybody's needs were being met. If they had giving gifts, resources built up so they could be given. If they had gifts of mercy, those who were grieving or, or in pain were being, all of their needs were being met. That is the definition of a healthy church. And when the Lord looks at Faith Baptist, we want him to be able to see our works, that we're laboring, that we're, everybody's toiling for the same goal, the glory of God and the gospel. Do you agree? So these are great words. It's a very productive church. I know your labor. The Lord knows it. He's been watching it. Labor, he knows their their work. Verse 3, you have labored, listen to this, for my name's sake. It wasn't to make their name great. It wasn't to make them... Um, elevated up on a platform, but it was for the Lord's sake that they served. What a great church. Secondly, we not only know it was a productive church, it was a pure church. Jesus himself says this, and verse 2, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. This is a pure church. When sin was public and willful in the body, I believe they had church discipline, like Paul instructed the early church. I think somewhere in our history, in our culture, maybe it was in the 40s or the 50s, that the churches just stopped implementing church discipline. Instead of, our church needs to be pure, 
The attitude of the church was, well, we can't kick anybody out. We can't remove anybody for sin with the hope of restoration and bringing them back to full fellowship. That would be cruel. That would be terrible. So instead, we want everybody to like us. And we want the world to like us. We want sinners to like us. And if there's public willful sin, we'll just tolerate it. We won't take it out or get it out of the church. Maybe the one thing that's lacking in the church today, the modern church, is it will not deal with sin. It will not deal with willful, deliberate sin against God. And there's no way that a church can be pure if it doesn't deal with sin. It has to deal with sin. Without that, our lampstand is snuffed out. The Lord simply blows on the wick and says, you're done. I'm not using you. You can't. It was a pure church. They found those, and they, they would not put up with evil, and even false teachers, as they came in, the church evaluated them against the word of God and said, you can't be here. We won't sit under your teaching. We won't give you the opportunity to speak and teach. You're a false teacher. You're not teaching the truth. You're done. You're out of here. What a pure church. A productive church. The Lord couldn't say enough. It was a pure church. They refused to put up with evil and false teaching had no place in their assembly. But third, it was a patient church. It was an enduring church. Listen. The one thing you and I need is endurance. We need patience. We need the ability to remain under for a long, long, long time. Do you agree? The average life of a Christian, the average serving life of a Christian when I first got saved 23 years ago was like five to six years. Now they're saying it's two years or less that a person trusts the Lord, gets involved in a local church, serves, and then stops serving. The, the, the commitment, the unwavering, I will serve the Lord no matter what, is gone. The patience, the ability to go on and on and on and on and on. Listen, does that, do we all have a reason to quit? Absolutely, we all have a reason to quit. Everybody here has been hurt or offended in ministry. Everybody. We all have a reason to quit. But we can't. We need to go on and on. And the Ephesian church, it says here, The Lord knows their patience. They were able to endure and remain under, faithfully serving the Lord over time, again and again and again. And then he says at the end of verse 2, I'm sorry, the end of verse 3, you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They just never grew weary in well-doing. What a commitment. A productive church, a pure church, and an enduring church. Just faithful, year after year. How long has our church been around? Coming up in 2021, we'll have been here 50 years. We want to be an enduring church. We want to make it 52 years, 53, 54, 51 as well. But we want to keep going, 60, 70 years, until the Lord comes. We want, we want a group of believers to be faithful right here, proclaiming the gospel. Do you agree? And, wh- and what's going to keep it faithful in the future? Our faithfulness right now. You agree? What if 20 years ago, the people that were sitting in the pews here just decided not to be faithful, not to be patient, not to be enduring? Where would we be? We wouldn't be here. Think about the early, back in the early 70s when they formed this, and the church was just struggling to get off the ground. What if they had simply given up and said, you know what, it's just not worth it? Where would we be? The reason we're here is because for 40 years, people before us have been faithful. And we want to show and demonstrate that kind of faithfulness so that the next generation has the ability to worship the Lord and grow and learn right here as well. 
So they were a very patient church. It says here also um, that they would not... Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here's another point of approval. They were a productive church. They were a pure church. They were a patient, enduring church. And part of their purity was they would not put up with the Nicolaitans' deeds. We're not sure what that Nicolaitan deeds are, the deeds of these people. Some people think there was a deacon named Nicholas, and he's found in Acts chapter 13. They think that he went off the, off the path. He went off into darkness, and he took a bunch of people with him, and he created this whole cult following. I don't see any other evidence in the scriptures or anything to verify that, so I would maybe not, I would not hold that view. If you look at the word Nicolation, Nico comes from Nike. Nike means to conquer, to have victory over. Laos means people. These were people conquerors. The Nicolations, their name just screams out to conquer the people. I think what happened in the Nicolations was this. There grew a group of people that said, you know what, we're not content to be under authority. We want to be the authority. And so there were churches that were established that were all autonomous churches. And then one person said, well, I'm going to be over five churches of this region. And he set himself up as a person over the people. So now it was clergy versus laity, which I don't see biblically anywhere. But then there was a clergy staff ruling over the people. And then there were a group of people. Then there was somebody that said, somebody needs to control the people over the five or six or seven churches. And they became another class of, of clergy. So now we had somebody over the bishops, and the bishops were over all of the local churches. But then somebody said, well, somebody has to be over that person who's over that person who's over the churches. And then another level was created of hierarchy. And then somebody said, well, those people need to be controlled, so I'm going to be on top of them. You see how it goes? So then you've got a, a pope, then you've got arch cardinals, then you've got cardinals, then you've got bishops, and, and, and you have the hierarchy, and it all flows down to rule over the people, where God intended every church to be autonomous, self-governing, autonomous churches. So I think these deeds of ruling over the people, the, the Ephesian church said, we, we won't have any part of it. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So the Lord looked at the church and found a lot of good And I'll tell you what, our church, and I want to warn you, our church can do a lot of right things. We can do a lot of right things. 99.9% of right things. But we might be missing something. Is it okay to be 99.9% right? If you are, then 2 million documents would be lost by the IRS every year. If you're 99% right, 22,000 checks would be um, debited from the wrong bank every hour of the day. 12 babies would go to the parent, different wrong parents every day if you're 99.9% right. And um, 18,322, Tom, pieces of mail would go to the wrong mailbox every hour. Not on my route. Not on Tom's route. <laughs> but if you're only 99.9% right... Listen, people, our church, we can, have, we can be doing the right Bible studies. We can do, be singing the right songs. We can, we can be doing everything right. But if we're missing the most important component, it doesn't matter then. 
And here's what the Lord found against the Ephesian church. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. They just didn't forget their first love. The idea is they deliberately left their first love. They began to have other loves. Their love when they were first saved, remember when they were throwing all those magic books into a big pile and burning them in front of everybody? And there was such an enthusiasm. And then somebody said, hey, let's get together at so-and-so's house and we're going to have a praise and celebration service. And man, the place was packed out and everybody wanted to be there. And then we're going to have a Bible study over at this house on Thursday. Well, I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm there. The priority of God's word is huge. I've got to be there. Their love for Jesus was just abounding and overflowing. But something happened over 40 years because this letter is written about 40 to 50 years after the church was founded. You know who's sitting in the church now? People that only heard about the magic book scene. They weren't really there. They weren't there. It was their relatives or maybe somebody else that was there that has now died off. Now, they're they're the second generation believer. And they don't have the same excitement. They don't have the same passion. They don't have the same love that the first generation did. And they began to, they left their first love. And they began to get cold in heart toward the Lord. And everything they were doing was just an outward thing. They were doing it right, but their heart and their motive was completely wrong. For it happens in marriages. When, you know when you first get married, it's like, I'm the happiest man in the whole world. I love my wife so much. And then she gets the sniffles. And you say, I'm going I'm I'm, I'm to take a day off of work. I'm going to make homemade chicken noodle soup for my wife. And you make the noodles by hand. You, you <laughs> pluck the chicken by hand. You cook the chicken. And, and you bring it to her, oh, poor baby, here's some soft tissue. And here's some homemade chicken noodle soup. What happens the next year when your wife gets sick? She has the little sniffles and you're like, well, honey, you know, I'm, I'm going to just use some frozen chicken. And, and then the year after, you're like, well, honey, I'm going to get some healthy heart soup out of the store, and, and, and I'll cook that for you and heat that up for you. And then some years later, what are you doing? You're like, she has the sniffles. Would you stop sniffling? You get everybody sick around here. And if you want to get something to eat, get in the car, go to the grocery store. What's wrong with you? You still have two feet. And, you know, it shouldn't be that way, but it happens it happens because we, we deliberately walk away from where we were originally. Do you agree? I think about when our church started down the road here with two couples having a Bible study, and they thought, there's no gospel presence up here in Hermantown. We need the gospel preached. We want to be right here. But they started in the living room down here. Can you imagine those first meetings when they said, what's the name of our church going to be? I don't know, Grace Baptist, Calvary Baptist, Fourth Baptist, Third Baptist, Faith Baptist. Yeah, let's do that. Faith Baptist. Can you imagine the excitement when they began to write it down and they're practicing it with different penmanship and then they're like, well, we got it. let's invite couples. And then they're, like, they're going out saying, you've got to come to our Bible study. It's the neatest thing in the world. And now here we are 40 years later, later saying, well, I can come to church anytime I really want. I don't need to go all the time. And who cares about me inviting anybody? I mean, the church is big enough. We've got a big enough bank account. We've got padded pews now. We've got everything. There's no reason I have to do anything. And we begin to drift and we, lose, we just lose that passion that we had for the Lord. Don't you agree? Listen, what was it like when you first got saved? I can tell you the Friday night when I got saved, I could not wait for Sunday. I was in the hospital Friday night. I knew I was getting out the next day. And I was a new man. 
And I remember coming here, I can tell you where I sat, and I remember watching Pastor Lapine, and I was like, oh man, I can't even believe this is in the Bible. Nobody told me about this before. And then I, then I read my Bible day and night, and I bring it to family things. Remember that when I first got saved? There was every family event that we had. I had my Bible, and I slapped it on the table. I made sure everybody saw it, and I was like, I'm going to read the Bible while you guys are watching TV, or you pathetic sinners, you know, I'm going to read the Bible. You know, that's just my terrible, right? Remember those days? And my family got mad at me. They're like, put the Bible away. I remember at the cabin, I, I, at the cabin, you know, I, it began to smell like smoke because I had it by the campfire. Then I brought it in when we, I brought it in the boat when we went water skiing. And, you know, do I still do that? I mean, where is my love for the Lord? And then I think about my, the first time I ever had communion and I was able to eat the bread. And I, I just remember, my Savior died for me. How many times have I taken communion since then? Once a month for the last 22 years. You know how many times I've done that? You know how many times I've heard the gospel from others and i preached it myself? Do I ever get tired of it? I hope not. I hope not. See, we, begin, we just begin to drift. And then next thing you know, we look back and we're like, well, I used to love the Lord like that, but I mean, I don't anymore. So if I don't make it to services and if I don't do that, you know what? It's just, it's not a big deal anymore. When at one time it was a big deal. Don't you agree? So the Lord says, oh, you Ephesians, you at one time had the just greatest passion for me. Now, we don't have time to get into all this, because of our, but listen, Ephesians 6, verse 24, the last verse of Paul's letter to the book of Ephesians. You know what it says? Grace, the grace of the Lord be with you all, and to all those who love the Lord with sincerity. To all those, he ends the letter telling the church, Grace is going to come to you who love the Lord with sincerity. Okay? That's, that's resounding in the very personal letter to the Ephesians. Do you know what the word sincerity means? Incorruptibility, unending existence. God's grace be upon you who love Jesus with an unending, incorruptible existence. You just love him more and more every day. You just can't wait to get in the Bible and to read and to see, this is how much my Savior loves me. Here's what he did for me. And your love for him just blows you over. And you cry at the, the smallest thing. You look at God's word and you're like, I can't believe this is in God's word. I just, you know, that's where, that's where we should be. So here's what the Lord says to do about it. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, the first thing we have to do is remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember what it used to be like in those early days. What was it like the first time when you got saved, when you were born again, and God's word became alive to you? And you just couldn't wait to learn something more about your Savior. You couldn't wait to be together with other believers. You couldn't wait to sing another song or hymn with with everybody together. We need to remember those things. Remember that... One time, we were really close and passionate with the Lord. So we have to remember where we were falling. That's always a good thing to do, isn't it? Husbands, go back to when you married your wife. And I can tell you right now, when I look at, when I, I can just picture right now what my wife looked like when the, when she, when the doors opened and she walked down that aisle. I can tell you her smile. I can tell you everything about that moment. I can, I, I can relive it a thousand times. And I don't want to ever lose that preciousness. You know what happened on Friday night? Uh, or 
early Friday morning, I'm sorry, as I was, um, Melissa was flying to California for this wedding, she had made arrangements for the shuttle to pick her up here in the Duluth area to take her down to the cities for uh, catching the flight out of Minneapolis, out of Minneapolis-St. Paul. And so I said, Melissa, I will drive you to get the, so you can get on the shuttle at 1.50 in the morning. So it's 1.15 at our house, and I'm wide awake, and she's getting ready, and we get in the car. I drive her to the interstate there in the Scanlon park and ride, and we're sitting there waiting for the shuttle to pick her up, and it doesn't come. And now we're getting worried, and I'm like, Melissa, the shuttle missed you. What are we going to do? She, I, and I'm like, let me look at your itinerary. So we pulled out the paper, and it said, pickup time, 1.50 p.m., they, weren't gonna, they were going to pick her up 12 hours from when she wanted to get picked up. So here she has to fly out of the cities, and it's 2 in the morning, and I'm thinking she doesn't have time to bring me back home and then take, my, take the car and go to the airport. Um, there's just, she'd miss her flight. I said, Melissa, we don't, have a ch-. I said, we don't have a choice. I'm bringing you to the airport right now. And I said, we're going to make this fun. And next thing you know, I'm on the interstate going down to the cities, which I never intended. We had the greatest time. We had, it was like we were kids. And I'm like, Melissa, we used to do that when we were dating and, or when we were first married. We'd be like, oh, let's just go get a donut at Toby's. And we'd go and do that. I mean, it was just spontaneous stuff like that. Um, and so we were like, wow, we used to do this. 20 years ago or 17 years ago, and let's do it again. I'm not going to be able to do it many more years, you know. But um, drive, drop her off and drive all the way home, and I made it just in time for school that morning. But that's the kind of, and I was like, we were just, it was passionate. It was just fun. It was like, there's nothing I'd rather do than at 2 in the morning drive my wife to the cities, never having expected to do it. It was just, and, and I think we have to remember where we have fallen. What was it like when you first knew the Lord? What was that excitement and the, your heart would just beat because, you knew that you were meeting the Lord in worship. And then he says this, the second thing we do is repent. We repent. We change our mind about our behavior, which results in a change of behavior. We change our mind about our sin and the need to return to the Savior, and God does a great work. You know what he did to the Corinthians? When the Corinthians repented of their sin, all of a sudden they had zeal. They had a boiling over. Then they had diligence. They had vehement desire, it says in 2 Corinthians 7. You should read 2 Corinthians 7 and see what happened to the Corinthians when they repented of their sin. We repent of our lack of love for the Lord, and he just turns it around and lights a fire on us. We're not going to stop talking about the gospel because that's all we want to do. We're not going to stop reading our Bibles because that's what we want to do. We won't stop gathering together in prayer because that's what we want to do. I love our prayer meetings and I love how well attended they are. I love how well attended our Sunday nights are. It's beautiful because it shows me this church hasn't lost her first love. So we remember, we repent, and then here's the next thing, and do the first works. We return. Go back to the first works. Go back and get involved in the Bible study. Come to prayer meeting. Go to Sunday school. Just get back to where it was when you were first in love with the Lord. So we remember that we have fallen. We repent. We change our mind about it. And then we just return and go back and do it. By the way, spiritual ministry requires action. You have to do it. And then the Lord says, if you don't, I will come to you quickly. It's a warning. And remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This is the Lord's church, and he can snuff this light out anytime he wants. And he's watching us. Tonight he's watching to see how we respond to all of this. Verse 7, here's the promise. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He, you individually. Sure, we as a church can't leave our first love, but what about you individually? Listen to that and respond. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to listen to all seven churches in the next couple of weeks. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know what the overcoming promise is for this one? By the way, who is the overcomer? I believe, just because of the, in light of all the promises to the overcomer, I do believe every believer is an overcomer and is given these promises. I do believe that. But I think in one sense, here's how it is. I think in one sense, this is the way every believer ought to be. You and I ought to be overcomers, getting back into our first love of Jesus, and we'll receive the full reward. If you don't, your reward will be taken away. So I think this promise is, for the full reward, we'll be able to eat to the fruit of the tree of life. It is a literal tree up in heaven. Can you imagine we get to heaven and the Lord says, you have access to this fruit. There'll be different fruits every month. Enjoy. And the first time we take it, even though we're in glorified bodies, we'll just pulse with nourishment and excitement from the tree of life. It's going to be the best fruit you've ever had. And it's going to do some nourishing and well-being in you. And we'll be able to do that day after day, week after week. Access to the tree of life, which Adam was denied because of sin. It just is the idea of abundant intimate life with our Savior. You'll find the tree of life mentioned four times in the book of Proverbs. And um, I think each of those is related to our flourishing and well-being in heaven. I wrote them down for you. In 3.18, wisdom is a tree of life. In chapter 11, verse 30, righteousness is a tree of life. In chapter 13, verse 12 of Proverbs, satisfied hope is a tree of life. And in chapter 15, 4, controlled speech is a tree of life. I think all of those things, is gonna, they'll produce well-being and uh, a beautiful time in heaven, eternal life. We can learn much about the book of Revelation. And we can learn, learn much about our church in light of, of Ephesus. Remember, repent and return. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's just